going to look at some things that happen in the book of Acts. Acts is written by the same guy who wrote the book of Luke. His name is Luke. It's what we did during the reset journey. And the book of Acts has some really, really wild stories in it. In fact, so wild, they make us uncomfortable. And perhaps we don't want to read them because they just kind of bother us a bit. That's exactly why we're going to look at them in this series. At least some of them. They, they, they really show some of the character of God. And you have a little roadmap inside of your, inside of your program. That roadmap is trying to uh, show that there was this revolution that happened when Jesus left the earth that just swept the globe and is still happening today. And there were these core attributes that continue to pop up in the lives of individual revolutionaries. And if you want to kind of read ahead of some of the stories we're going to look at in the book of Acts, which is called Acts because it's either the Acts of the early leaders, the apostles, or Acts of the church, you can take a look inside of your program and there's a section of uh, the little chunk of Scripture we'll be looking at next week. If you want to read that and do some pre-work, if that's helpful for you, that, uh, that will be great. Well, let's pray before I go any further. God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, being able to be in a place where there are really cool people. There are great people in here, and we're thankful for every person that's in here. No matter what our current belief system is, no matter what our current habits are in our life, it is great to be with other people in a room like this, hearing about things that uh, we're not going to hear about in most other places. And I pray that you just help me to be, to be clear uh, to keep my spit to a minimum <laughs> and, to, uh, and to just be helpful today. And I know that when you are giving us insights, that's what happens. We are helped. And I pray that uh, uh, this would happen in a powerful way today. And I pray these things according to the character that, uh, that we see in Jesus. Amen. Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 46 to 47, gives a little snippet of what happened in this early revolution and it's still happening today of some of the marks that happened. And I, I, I've been thinking about this recently because these things have been happening around you. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 2. It says this. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. We, we in some ways are doing this. We're meeting together in this place. We meet together other places and smaller groups of people. We're meeting together, breaking bread in their homes. We drink coffee here and other places. Ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These are, these are the marks of what was happening with early people who were banding together to be a blessing to their world and just trying to live the life that Jesus modeled. It says daily, God added their number, those who were being saved. That's another way of saying daily, God was bringing people out of a humdrum existence into seeing the purposes of God. That's another way of saying daily, God was adding people to their community who were getting beyond their petty preoccupations and getting free. It's another way of saying daily, people are coming into an eternal relationship with God and wouldn't have to suffer the consequences of being eternally separated from God. I, I was thinking about this first this last week because we had a pretty amazing thing this last weekend. We had baptisms happen here. Was that fun last week? Yeah, it was very fun. I, I'll, never, I'll never stop to be amazed at how, how stupid looking a pool is on stage at a church. I mean, that's like the cheesiest looking pool ever. Uh, but yet amazing things happened in there. People were getting baptized, signifying, I really want to be fresh. I want my old self to be away. I want to be one with who God is. I mean, want to be one with Jesus. 
And earlier, later on in the week, somewhere around Tuesday or so of this past week, someone sent me a little tally of all the people just here at the Oakley campus, not the Mason campus, but just here at the Oakley campus, who had uh, actually been baptized, filled out a little card, uh, and just counted up the cards. And this was uh, the piece of paper I was given right here, baptism totals. Amazing. Uh, two things struck me on here. First thing that struck me was obviously a woman did this because only women put little balls on the end of their uh, letters and stuff like that. That's a chick thing right there, you know, kind of make it a little cutesy. 365, are you kidding me? 360, I don't know if you've noticed, but that's right around the number of days in a year. It's right, right within spitting different. You know what that means? Literally, that means daily. Daily, God is adding to the number that's just a part of the Crossroads community. That's not even everybody else in the, in the city of other great churches, other bodies. Daily, daily, that's happening here. And the other thing that I, I thought about in reference to that Acts 2 verse was yesterday. How about go Cincinnati? Come on, are you kidding me? Come on, are you kidding? My word. Amazing, amazing. Afterwards, after Go Cincinnati, when, when we just worked our noogies off and amazing things were happening all over the city, hundreds of different projects, all different kinds of people deployed. Uh, one of the people who's a part of our community actually got added to our number, got, got, came to know Jesus here and got baptized a number of years ago. Uh, he's, I believe, the hottest chef in the city, has the two hottest restaurants in the city. His name is David Falk. He, he started and owns Nada and Boca. And he decided to do this thing called Go Grub to serve everybody who volunteered, everybody who volunteered, and get all of his best friends, the best chefs in the city, pulled their resources, raised money, and had Go Grub in Washington Park with people who were homeless, people who were in the area and normally wouldn't have that kind of meal. It was crazy. Thousands of people there. And people were smiling like you wouldn't smile anywhere else. Cops were happy. Politicians were happy. Everybody was happy. And I sat there and I thought... This is, this is a sign of enjoying the favor of all the people. Sometimes when you follow God and you take his characteristics in your life, some people won't like it and sometimes you'll get some level of persecution, you'll get some ridicule. That does happen. But by and large, people who get ridiculed are annoying. <laughs> when you're loving on people and serving on people, you enjoy favor of people. And this is what happened with the early Christ followers and to some degree, we're seeing that here in our city where we're enjoying favor as a result of more people just wanting to be a blessing to the city in which we reside. The early followers of Jesus went to the cities. They didn't get away to the vacation homes off in the country. I like going to the country. It's fun being out there. I like vacationing there. But I want to be where cities are because cities are where the action is. Over six, 50 to 60% of the world's population is in cities. It's going up, 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 up. This is why the early followers of Christ went to the cities. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible called Romans because they were in the city of Rome. Funny how that happens. There was a whole, there's two books in the Bible called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because they went to the city. It's called Corinth. You read the book of Acts and you see they go to places like Antioch. They're going to cities and they're being Jesus inside the cities in which they reside. And there were these mass amount of volunteers that were building into people. And there were also people, not just the have-nots, but there were the haves, the haves, who were giving their resources and offering them up to be a blessing. Now this accounts for why we're still here today on the other side of the globe in the sweeping revolution that still exists today. There is this sacrificial nature, this commitment, and we're talking about commitment today primarily. There is this commitment that happens that just want, causes you to be a blessing and a loving presence in the city in which you reside and in the lives in which you know. 
the Emperor Julian, who succeeded Constantine, wanted to do, uh, undo some of his, uh, uh, his practices and wanted to get uh, other religions to start doing some good in the cities as followers of Jesus were doing in the cities. But he never had success doing that. And uh, in part, there was a number of reasons, but Rodney Stark read this book recently, Discovering God. It's, uh, it's not a great book, but there's some interesting stuff in it. Discovering God. And, and he says this. He's a, he's a historian and sociologist out of the University of Baylor. And he says this. But his challenge to the temples to match Christian benevolence asked the impossible. Paganism was utterly incapable of generating the commitment needed to motivate such behavior. Not only were many of its gods and goddesses of dubious character, they offered nothing that could motivate humans to go beyond self-interested acts of propitiation. Self-interested acts of propitiation. That means basically quid pro quo. That means you scratch my back, I scratch your back. That's a lot of pop spirituality today. It's this idea of, you know, I need to do good because I believe in reincarnation, so I need to do good so that I can get a better life form to come back later on. Or I need to do good because I need to attract the secret of wealth to me. I need to do good because I need to attract good things to me. See, this isn't what Jesus did. Jesus did good purely because of love. He stretches out his arm on a cross and dies because he loves and is laying his life down. He has that kind of commitment. Not because he's looking for people to like what he's doing. And this is what happens when God gets a hold of your life. You want love and you, you practice commitment to people just because that's who you are. Just because that's the model of Jesus. And no movement has been able to galvanize people to love their cities like people who are coming in the face in the steps of Jesus. Rodney Stark also tracks the, 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 the growth of people who are aligning with Jesus as a result of this revolution. And uh, here's his rough take, and I've seen this uh, other places as well. It's pretty well seen from the year 40 all the way through 350. This is the power of compound interest, about 3.4%. You can see about 350. 52% of the Roman Empire were aligning themselves with Christianity. Now, obviously, 52% are not committed and really enjoying a loving relationship with Jesus. At this point, you've got a bunch of people who are aligned with the Christian religion, being a part of the religion, but not necessarily being part of Jesus. You can be part of Christianity and not really be a part of Christ. Two totally different things in many ways. And this is part of why Constantine really officially knighted Christianity as sort of the religion of the Roman Empire. That's a pretty good base right there. That's a pretty good base to draw from. So certainly there were some people who were just kind of around because it was a cool thing to do, but this, make no mistake about it, is a revolution that is still continuing today and still going on today. It caused people to love others like nobody else has since. In the years 165 and 251 AD, there were plagues that went through the Roman Empire, wiping people out, and the people who stayed in the cities to love people were followers of Jesus. This is just history. It's just the way it is. Galen is uh, one of the best-known physicians of all time of the classical era. And even Galen, history says, he left the city and went to his country estate because he didn't want to get the plague. But who stayed behind? Followers of Christ. Even those who had country estates and had major, major jack because they wanted to stay and selfishly love their city and love people. They were committed this is the kind of special things that took place. Yesterday, I uh, bumped into a friend of mine, and she is loaded, low dead. 
Money I'm talking about. Loaded. And she, was, she had mud all over her, and she was, she was smiling like a butcher's dog at, at Go Grub. She was happy, and she was laughing about it because she's, she's like, I haven't been dirty for decades. And she hasn't been dirty for Because she pays everybody to do her dirty work. And good for her. If I, if I could afford someone to do all my dirty work, that's fine. No problems there. That, that's fine. But why is she happy? Why is she happy when she's dirty? Is she, is she going, oh, man, I love when my fingernails are to have dirt under her. That's so nice. No, she was caught up in the, in the committed atmosphere of love, and she was just utterly giddy, but maybe the happiest I've seen her. It wasn't that she was dirty. It was that she was enjoying this revolutionary thing that happened and getting the benefits of it. Now, we read earlier uh, that there was this thing that not only were people giving of their time, but they also realized that all of possessions, all the possessions that I have, they're not actually my possessions, they're God's possessions. And as needs to happen, I will kind of divest my property. I will give to people who are in need. Um, and being in need isn't like, I need to make sure everybody has air conditioning or I need to make sure everybody has, is able to eat out the same number of times as I am. It's that these early followers said, man, when somebody's in our midst and they're hungry or they don't have a place to sleep, that's just not acceptable. We just, I just need to do something about that. And so from time to time, as that we read that verse earlier, they would come and lay it down at the apostles' feet, at the leader of the church's feet. It meant that they were coming and saying, I just sense that God wants me to give this money over to be used. And they were making these, these voluntary commitments. And in this, in, in this kind of environment of all that's happening, we have one of the most troubling and strangest and maybe one of the more interesting passages in the Bible, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at, from the book of Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the property for himself, part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter, who's one of the leaders, said this, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to human beings, but to God. Then Ananias heard this. He fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. Now, about three hours later, his, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Uh, yes, she said, uh, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young woman... The young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Lot of things for us to learn here today. Let me just say this and, and, uh, and starting to look at this. There are a lot of things that are very, very intense that God appears in the Bible to do once because he wants to send a message, but it sort of memorializes it. I don't think God goes around just kind of knocking people dead and saying, oh, watch this person. Yeah, they're dead. I don't think that happens. 
very frequently. Just like, I don't think very often anybody, maybe never again or ever since, is somebody going to take a staff and jam it in front of a big body of water as Moses did, parts the water, go through, and then the oppressors in, in pursuit of get drowned. I mean, God doesn't going to, probably not going to do that again. He could, but yet in doing that once and having it recorded in the scriptures, we all can learn about it. We can learn about who the character is of this person that we're trying to get to come to know more and more. No matter what your current spiritual orientation is here right now, no matter what your belief system is, these things, we've got to wrestle with these things if you want to understand who the God is that's actually in the Bible. And here we have something that's memorialized for us all to learn from. And we shouldn't just kind of go, oh, that's ridiculous. That's why I don't like the Bible. I'm not going to read that. Let's examine for a moment why we don't like this story. What's concerning about this story? What is actually disturbing about this story for us? These people are committed. They are absolutely committed. They aren't like following Jesus because it's the right thing to do. They're not doing it because it's part of their religion. So religion says I got to do this. These people are committed. They were on mission. They were on a revolution that was being a blessing and changing positively their world and their friends. Understand this in the context of revolutionaries. Revolutionaries, revolutionaries make commitments and they follow through. These commitments that these, uh, these people make are voluntary commitments that they make and they needed to follow through on them. It's very important to understand that the early followers of Christ were not practicing Marxism. They weren't practicing, none of us have any property of our own. It's all communal property. This is not communal property. This is recognizing God's blessing with this property and from time to time I need to make commitments and I need to follow through. Ananias and Sapphira, there is not some church bulletin that says everybody who has property, sell all your property, got to bring it to the church today. This is a decision they make in and of their own power. They decide to make this commitment. Just so you see that this is something they decide to do in and of their own will. Look what it says here again. Peter asks them, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've lied. You've lied. The issue is here, he, he's lying. He's, he's, he's acting to be somebody he is not. And Peter says here, it belonged to you before. It belonged, no one made you do this. And it still belongs to you right now. But yet you are lying and you're trying to purport your lie and try to, trying to pretend that you are somebody who you are not. When you decide to commit something, you've got to follow through. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. These are people that didn't need contracts that were binding them. They said, man, my word, my word and my desire to be about being a person of integrity says that when I make a commitment, I follow through. That's what I was so excited about yesterday. We had that little pep rally in the morning at 8 o'clock, every single seat in here was taken. People standing around on all the balconies, wearing white shirts. And there was groups like that around the city. And with no stinking rain, we laugh at rain. People weren't going, oh, man, oh, the rains. I can't work in the rain. Oh, no, I can't work in the rain. It's like as if rain is acid or something like that. Oh, no, I think I better stay home and watch golf. No. You guys are committed. You're committed. That's why it was a special thing. He said, man, I said I'm going to be there. I am going to be there. I am going to follow through. And if it means working in the rain, that's fine. Amazingly, honestly, I just have to say, I do think that there is a God. And then he does things like alter weather, weather patterns. It was supposed to be from time to time. 
Doesn't always, but from time to time. And it looks like it, that happened yesterday. It was supposed to rain today. It was supposed to be awful. Nine o'clock, I'm getting my sight, and all of a sudden I'm seeing shadows because light comes out. Perfect. Perfect work. It couldn't have been better working weather. And when does the rain start? When all the food is gone at Go Grub. Come on. Are you serious? Are you serious? But nonetheless, there was, there's this, this committed spirit that's around here that is a special, special thing that happens. I have to also call attention to the obvious. I feel really strange. I'm, I'm actually wearing jeans that have holes in them today. And um, I'm not trying to be cool. Well, maybe I am. Maybe I'm trying to be cool because um, the, the, the deal is uh, my, my son Jake and I, we actually wear the same size clothes now. I thought that was something only girls did, but actually we're actually... <laughs> sharing clothes right now and I'm fortunate uh, that, that Libby still does my laundry and most of the time his laundry and and I think as a result of that it's just too confusing whose jeans are whose and so it's just like mix and match whoever gets it in their closet that's the way it goes you know so I go to my closet yesterday and all my jeans have holes in them they're not mine because his he buys them he buys his jeans pre-drilled I do not understand why you buy your clothes pre-drilled it, it makes it makes no sense to me but whatever so I see him like well, actually, that'll preach. I'll actually wear that. So I actually got these jeans on warm yesterday. And it just, honestly, the fashion is something from, that you would buy something that's worn out. Let me tell you, back in my day, back in my day, we wore our jeans out. Back in my day, we got hold of the old-fashioned way. We played on our hands and knees on the sidewalk. Yes, we did. Back in my day, you couldn't buy jeans that had holes in them. Back, back in my day, it was impossible for your jeans to get holes in them. I had tough skins. Who had tough skins? Oh, come on. If you're old enough to have had your mother go to Sears to buy jeans, which that right there sends a clue. She would actually go to Sears, buy jeans called tough skins. I would play with my Tonka toys on the sidewalk and wear the sidewalk out before my jeans would get worn out. And now we buy our jeans pre-drilled. But, you know, there's something special. Like if you have jeans on and clothes on because you had them there as a result of commitment, you are cool. You are absolutely cool. But if you have pre-drilled stuff and you're not committed, that's not cool at all. That's fashionable. It is, it is never fashionable to make commitments. It's not fashionable to make commitments. We are in a society that is afraid to make commitments. We are in a society that only commits at the last minute if there's no other option. We're in a society that wants to keep all options open and we just want to show up to things versus be committed to things, put our name on the line for things. I'll tell you something, spiritual maturity, if you want a spiritual maturity, have deeper faith, spiritual maturity has zero to do with chronological maturity. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how old you are, nothing. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do if you're baptized or how long ago you were baptized. Nothing. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how many times you read the Bible or if you have verses memorized. Nothing. It doesn't. You spiritually mature by fulfilling commitments. That's how you spiritually mature. That's why few of us spiritually mature. You make commitments and you fulfill them. Ananias and Sapphira apparently made a broadcast commitment that said, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to sell some land. Look at us. And then they decided not to fulfill it 
but they just wanted everybody to think that they were fulfilling it. Commitments. Make commitments. Here, here's, here's an easy commitment we can all make. May 15th, 2010, make a commitment to do go Cincinnati. Consider that. Make it your first commitment next year, May 15th, 2010, instead of waiting until May 1st and wondering if something better is going to happen on May 15th. Now, if your mom dies and you can't be there, that's cool. Not cool that your mom dies, but that's cool that, you know, you would, you would do that. I mean, if, if, you, if something happens and it's impossible to fulfill a commitment, then that's the way it is. But man, wear out your genes trying. And when you do, when you do, there is a spiritual fiber that you have that's taking place inside of you that didn't happen before. Spiritual maturity happens when you make voluntary commitments that you feel that God wants you to make and you fulfill them. It's hard to talk about this, uh, this story also without at least touching on money because that's part of this thing. And a perfect illustration that happened this last week. I haven't talked with this person. Um, uh, they interacted with some people here at the finance team of, of, our, of our community. And apparently... Uh, they had felt, uh, they had made a commitment to God. Uh, they didn't tell anybody about it, but that's, uh, that's even a better commitment. Try not telling somebody about it, but it's just between you and God. Then no one can even hold you accountable except God. That's deep. Well, apparently they made some commitment or that, that, um, that they were so um, excited about our work with justice work and getting uh, girls out of slavery and stuff like that, that they made a commitment that they wanted to make a hundred, write a hundred thousand dollar check. And they let a year go by without doing that. And apparently something just popped and they, they decided to do that this last weekend. And uh, yeah, you can clap for that. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome, pretty tense. What I love about that is two things. What I love about that is two things. One is they came and basically laid at our feet. We don't accept um, directed donations around here. You can't say, hey, I like a staff member. Can I give money so you give that person a bonus? No. We can't say, hey, I, I, like my, I like kids, but I want some special equipment back there. Can I, like, can I like get, up, get all my thing to, to kids club? No. Hey, I just want to do South Africa. Can I do it? No. No, you can't. We're a team. We're one. We're one. And the person who is unemployed and gives five bucks is just in part of everything that happens around here is the person who has holdings to divest and has $100,000. Laying in submission and authority, banking commitment to the community you're part of. It doesn't mean that all your giving has to be in a part of the church that you're a part of, but it means that you are committed to the team and what God wants. And I just think it's crazy, crazy that they would fulfill that kind of commitment that no one knew and to have that kind of faith. I'll tell you what, I guarantee you, if I talk with those, I'm, if I talk with them, they grew. Guarantee they grew. They grew. The, the thing about Ananias and Sapphira is, is not that they, they didn't have to make this commitment. And maybe they would have even decided to change their commitments. Maybe that wouldn't have been as bad. But what was really bad is they let everybody have the illusion that they're growing spiritually and then they're fulfilling their commitments. They are what is called a hypocrite. Hypocrite. I, I find that uh, in our society we're, we're losing the meaning of hypocrite. Not losing. We've lost it. We, we don't have any idea. A hypocrite is not somebody who does something you disagree with. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not somebody who has problems in their life. A hypocrite is not somebody even who has sin in their life. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is, is, is an ancient word which means street actor. A hypocrite is somebody who is playing a role on a street, somebody who they're not. It's where we get those masks from, those kind of old ancient kind of fake smiley or frown masks. A hypocrite was a street actor who put those masks in front of them pretending to be a role that they weren't. 
So you're a hypocrite, not if you have areas of rebellion in your life, not if you have areas of your life that God isn't happy with, not if you are doing things that aren't what Jesus would do. That's, that, that's not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is when you are pretending and broadcasting to somebody you're not. For instance, uh, a lot of people are having a lot of thrill seeing that uh, Mel Gibson apparently is getting divorced, which is crazy that anybody would have a thrill that somebody is having a divorce and he's being called a hypocrite because, you know, after all, he's a staunch Catholic, did Passion of Christ, and yeah, he's getting, hypocr- getting a divorce. And I guess this is a person he's uh, dating right now, and um, uh, divorce is just not a good idea. But what I'm saying here is not something God likes. But what I'm saying here is that's not a, being a hypocrite. A hypocrite would be if Mel Gibson was to say, I believe nobody should ever get divorced. I'm actually starting a foundation. No one should get divorced. My marriage is great while divorce proceedings were going on. That would be a hypocrite. Not when something happens and you get a divorce. I don't even want to get into that too much. All of a sudden, that doesn't make you an automatic hypocrite. It is the, it is, is the face of it. Ananias and Sapphira are pretending to be growing spiritually, pretending to be committed, but they're not. They can't follow through. They will not follow through. And look what happens as a result of what takes place here. She says... She says, yes, that's the price. Peter said, well, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out also. Gosh, talk about gutsy. You hear those footsteps? Peter, 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 Peter. Yeah, they're coming to take you out too. You're going to die dead right now. Bam, she dies. My goodness. My, how, how would you feel right now if you saw this happen? How would you feel if it, I don't, I don't know about you, but I would be freaked out. In fact, everybody is freaked. If you're not freaked out, then uh, you must not have a pulse. People are afraid when they see this. Look at this. After Ananias falls down, it says, And great fear, and great fear seized all who had seen what happened. And then when Sapphira falls down, it says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I don't talk about this too much. We're going to talk about it today. Revolutionaries not only fulfill their commitments, but revolutionaries have healthy fear. Revolutionaries have a healthy fear of God. Um, if you've been around here for any length of time, you'll know that uh, we are not into fear. I'm really down on fear. I, I, don't, I would not consider myself a fearful person uh, at all. And I don't think that we should be fearful at all. I don't think, I think any time we spend being paranoid and fearful about the swine flu is wasted time. You should spend that time praying instead. Crazy. And by the way, there will be an epidemic and a flu virus that someday wipes out a large portion of the United States. Sorry to bum you out, but it will happen. World history says the plagues and stuff happen. It's amazing we haven't had one for a while. It will happen. But me sitting around and being fearful that, oh no, that can happen, is not productive. Me sitting around and being fearful and paranoia that my 16-year-old is going to get in her car and go, and, oh no, no, that's fine. Tell them to make sure they wear their seatbelt. Tell them to obey the laws, all that stuff. But to sit at home going, oh no, no, are they living? Are they getting alive? There are millions of 16-year-olds that are out in the street and they're not dying. It's wasted energy for me to be sitting at home being paranoid that one of my kids is going to die. It is wasted time. These, these are what we would call, or I would call, unhealthy fears. Unhealthy fears of, oh no, something bad's going to happen. Real bad. Be afraid. Be very afraid. This is, this is being afraid of what could happen, not a healthy fear of God. I'm talking about a healthy fear of God. And we don't talk about this too much because religion oftentimes kind of drills into us, be afraid and do things out of fear. That's not really entirely healthy. 
We ought to do things out of love and out of motivation for that. But at the same time, at the same time, we have to recognize that um, I love my kids. I love my kids and they need to have a healthy fear of me. (laughs) And if your kids didn't have a healthy fear of you growing up, your kids are out of control right now. I'm sorry, they are. You tried to be your peer with your kids and you're not meant to be your peer. You're meant to be their leader. And eventually you become their peer and friend. But, you know, if you never like wanted like to, to discipline, lean into your kids, you didn't bless them with a healthy fear that could keep them from doing something that would hurt themselves. And it's the same way with God. It's the same way with God. I live in stark fear of God. I don't, it's not a capricious kind of fear. It's not a thing where I go, oh, no, I wonder if God's going to have a bad hair, today, hair day today and just get up on a bad moon and whack me. It's not that kind of thing. It's not a kind of fear of God where I'm going, boy, God's so unpredictable. I never know what he's going to feel. Oh, ow, that hurt. It's not that kind of stuff at all. It's, it's the kind of fear I remember when I was a little kid going to the zoo and uh, seeing this massive python, massive. And I'd be like this little pane of glass between me and this huge python that was lazy but just up around this fake limb tree thing there. And I'm like, this is crazy. A little plane of glass. What if this thing jumps through the glass? I, I, it's, it, I started having nightmares about pythons and like dropping into the container and this thing eating me. No, that's not a healthy fear. I'm being paranoid of somehow dropping into a python container. That would never happen. That's, that's not productive. But, but if I'm in a container where there's a python, I'm going to have a healthy fear. I'm around something that is powerful, powerful. I have a reverence and awe and a healthy fear. The other week I was over here, there's like a wood shop for people who were kind of doing stuff around here and making sets, and there's this table saw in there. Not this like little weenie table saw that I have at my house I can carry around, but this is a table saw someone donated from an old factory years and years ago. It is massive, this massive iron metal thing that have special wiring come into it. When you turn this thing on, it's like all the lights in Cincinnati dim. It's like, <laughs> and it's like, oh, when that comes around, I'm like, whoo, whoo. I'm like, not one, just go play around the blade. Somebody yesterday was cutting at the, the project I was at with this chainsaw. In an earlier years when I didn't have as much of a healthy fear for machinery, I'd have been right up against that thing. I kind of like bending down on the tree branch, trying to help the, the doll chain. No, not yesterday. I'm like, I'm just going to stand right back here. That's okay. You, you can take an extra 45 seconds cutting through that because I really don't need that cutting, kicking up into my face. It's a healthy fear. First time I went to South Africa and visiting people who are in the advanced stages of AIDS as a result of them or somebody else having sex with people they shouldn't have had sex with and saw their body and bones wither down to nothing. I had, again, a healthy fear that when you just play with sex the way it's not supposed to be, it's just not healthy. And even in our country, STDs are running rampant. No one's talking about this because we want to think that we can have safe sex. Running rampant. And I got, ooh, man, I, I just don't need to go buy that thing. Now, when it comes to God, when I am around God or thinking of God, it's like when I went to the Niagara Falls for the first time. You can't go to Niagara Falls and be around that rumble of gazillion gallons per second going over and there's this pounding and the shaking of 
without feeling a reverence and awe, a fear. When I've gone out to the Grand Canyon, I like to park my bike in the side of the woods and hike through the woods to the edge of the canyon where there's no railing. I like going up. I don't go too close. I don't go too close. But man, the view where there's no tourists and where there's no railing. But when I'm up going up that thing, my stomach starts to get this. I just, healthy fear tells me I don't need to be doing this. You know, I, I, I feel that same way around God. The same way. I live in healthy fear of him. Sometimes it's big things. Sometimes it's small things. This last week, a friend of mine, um, I didn't ask him to talk about this. I don't think he'd mind. Uh, name is Gil, old guy. And uh, we got sideways on a couple emails. And I thought, oh, well, he'll, he'll come around and see the light. I'll just let that one sit for a while. Of course, you think that. Of course, you always think somebody else is wrong, right? But no, in those moments, it's a fear of God where I'm like, man, I don't want to like, tempt God to get my attention here. Just walk over and talk to the guy. Plus, he's old enough, he might die any day now anyway. So just kind of go over there. That's for you, Gil. Love you if you're here. You know, I, it's not just my love of him and the relationship, but I, I don't want to test God. Why would I want to test God on that? Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here's a couple other Psalms and Proverbs that talk about this. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. I don't think that there, there, all of us have more than, let's keep these verses up for a moment. All of us have more of pain and difficulty in life that the vast, 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 vast majority of it is because we live in a broken world where bad things happen. But eventually, if Bad thing after bad thing after bad. If we're not feeling prosperous, eventually we have to say, okay, is God trying to get my attention? All of us, especially me, I have way more good things than I deserve. God is so graceful and so merciful. All of us should be in a worse spot than we are. But God's grace and mercy just continues to go along with us. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. There was this healthy fear that swept across all these revolutionaries where they say, we see the power, the awesome, magnificent power of God. Why would I want to test him? Why would I want to tempt him? Why would I want to do that? Man, you start to grow spiritually when you live your life in awareness of that. Not thinking that God is just going to hurt you just because he feels like it. No, but man, I just don't want to test or tempt God. We can't get away with this if we know anything about the early followers of Jesus or Jesus himself or anything in the entire Bible. God does not exist to be our good luck charm. He doesn't. God does not exist to be the object that gets you off of the hook. God does not exist to be the person that tells you sweet, nice things that nobody else will tell you. God exists because he is different. He is holy. He is above he is great. God, I am praying that as we contemplate this message, as we contemplate uh, this truth of who you are, right now in the quietness, you would help us to see, help us to see, not just you, but ourselves, the way you see us. Give us vision. Give us that kind of vision.